How wonderful to praise God together. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat and then join me in prayer this morning. Ah, yes, Father, how we do adore you, our only wise King, the one who was and is and is to come. You are the King of kings, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. How blessed are we to come together to worship you who is from the beginning and always will be. Thank you for being here with us, among us, this morning. Thank you that there is nowhere we can go where you won't be there too. For you have promised to never leave us. You've been with us in the storms this week, both the real physical storms and the metaphorical ones that we've experienced. We pray for those who are working tirelessly to help us recover from the storm damage, as well as we pray for those who've suffered firsthand the damage. Give the extra measure of faith and patient endurance needed at this time and help them all to stay fixed on you. And we pray for our brothers and sisters working at the Mount Hermon Conference Center because they are dealing with considerable storm damage from roofs and their ropes course to roads and buildings damaged. But thank you that they are still able to be open and have groups come. So we pray that as our youth go up there in just a couple of weeks, um, that all who've planned to go will still be able to go and hear more about you, Jesus. Help the repair efforts there. And of course, we continue to pray for Ukraine and for those suffering from the latest attacks. It's hard to know how to pray, Father, but we continue to ask for peace in this region, for provision of needs, and we pray for your people in both Ukraine and Russia to advance your gospel, to remember that you are still their inheritance, and may your glory be shown to them and through them and in all the countries surrounding them. Give the world leaders divine wisdom in decision-making. And here at PBCC, we raise our elders and our pastors and our administrative and facilities staff to you because these are the folks that keep this church running. And we pray that you'd give them endurance and health and wisdom as they lead us in your way everlasting. And may each of us continue to serve according to the gifts and promptings given by your Holy Spirit. We give you now the remainder of our worship service here in this auditorium and then ultimately all around our campus this morning. Blessing and honor, strength and glory and power be to you, our only true wise King. Amen. So these verses connect last week's um, passage and this week's passage in Colossians 3. These are the words from Matthew 26, verses 59 to 64. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, 
though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All right, we're going to invite Eugene up. Thank you, Sharon, for leading us into our time in the Word. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all once again. Um, as we begin our time with the word, though, I would like to take a moment to recognize members of our congregation who aren't often able to be with us as we are all here gathered today. These members of our congregation often go unseen, and I, I mean that quite literally. What I'm about to say applies to everyone who will be joining the 1030 service via the live stream today, especially those who do so regularly out of necessity, whether because of a medical condition or some other ongoing complication or hardship. Now, obviously, we don't live stream this service, and so this may not apply directly to us here at the 8.30 a.m. service, but I'd still like to share with you a realization I came to this past week as I was preparing this message, this re a realization about our live stream brothers and sisters. And that is that every member of the body of Christ is essential to the body of Christ, whether they are able to be physically present with us or not. Wherever they may be on Sunday morning, each plays an essential role in the body. And in fact, those who aren't able to be here, even though they'd much prefer to be, might, they might even have unique roles to play for a time that the rest of us simply do not or at least not to the same extent. And perhaps one of those roles is to experience at an especially deep level what it means to long for our coming reunion with Christ. The strong wine of separation God has poured into their lives gives them great insight into the bittersweet truth that to be Christian is to live with a longing that will not be satisfied until Christ returns. I'm sure these brothers and sisters didn't choose this for themselves, and it is all of our prayer that our separation would end. But so long as we remain separated, perhaps we can find some purpose in it. And so we are grateful for these brothers and sisters, and we miss them even as we are missed by them. And in missing one another, we all gain a better understanding of what it means to live with a longing for Christ. And so I'd just like to begin our sermon just with a quick word of prayer for all of us here, but especially for those who are not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your grace to us in giving us your spirit who binds us together in unity across great distances and across difficult circumstances. But Lord, still we long to be together. And still we long to be together with you. So God, stir in us, Lord God, hope and perseverance and courage Lord, to face this tension of dislocation. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, of course, in all these comments, I don't mean to diminish the ways those of us who are able to meet in person have experienced separation in our own lives, whether it was being separated from our parents as children at the grocery store or saying goodbye to a high school sweetheart when leaving for college, or moving on from what had once been a spiritual family, or even having to leave a company, a city, or even a country out of some necessity, we've all experienced the pain of separation in one way or another, haven't we? We've all experienced the longing to be reunited and the tension of dislocation. I'm here in this place, in this situation, even in this body, but I want to be there. I want to be in that place with those people where I feel I belong. Now, people spend much of their lives trying to relieve this tension. As I get older, I find myself nesting more, rearranging furniture in my house to find a way that it'll all fit that feels a bit more like what I imagine home to be buying things here and there to try and make my life closer to what I imagined it would be when I was younger. And I find myself repeating routines, going to the same restaurants, walking down the same aisles at the same stores, spending my days doing the same work and my evenings doing the same activities. And no, I don't think that I am clinically obsessive compulsive. I'm just saying I'm into these routines. And the predictability of them all makes me more set- feel more settled and a little bit less dislocated. It fools me into thinking that I belong here, in this world, doing the things that I'm doing in this life. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you can relate to what I'm saying. Maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that feeling of routine giving you stability in a place of tension. Or maybe you hear me and you just think, well, isn't that what life is about? Settling down and putting down roots and working hard so you can afford the things that make this world into a home? Isn't that what life is, after all? But then something happens. Something happens to challenge this assumption. Our comfort is interrupted, our hard-earned peace is broken, the unexpected takes place, and our lives get turned upside down, and the questions pierce through the routine. Is this really all there is? Is this how life is supposed to be? Will things ever get better? And maybe that's when some, or even many of us, start reaching for the stronger stuff to soothe the rising tension. Whether it's something we look at online, or something we work for, something we drink, or something we inhale, or something we eat, or something we refrain from eating. We feel the temptation to reach for something, or some routine, or some behavior that will soothe our sense of dislocation. But the courageous part of our hearts wants to lean into that tension. It affirms what we've been suspecting all along, that though we were born into this world, we weren't meant for this world. That though we are made of stardust, we were always meant to shine even brighter. Though we live here for now, in Christ, we have a greater life coming. The Spirit awakens the eternity God has set within our hearts, stirring in us a holy discontent, helping us rediscover amid the pieces of who we are, the corner piece truth that more awaits us in the future. This is a corner piece truth we find in the verses we will be looking at this morning as we return to Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. 
It pairs with and it completes the truth that we remembered last week, that Christ is ruling and reigning all reality from the right hand of God. Today we remember one more R word. Christ is returning. And when he returns, he will share with us his resurrection life. Let me read for us today's verses, Colossians 3, 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you've been following along with our study of the letter to the Colossians, you may recognize Paul's declaration, for you have died, as yet another reference to the Colossian believers' baptism. If you haven't, you might think Paul's being a little bit rude here, but no, he's actually referring to the Colossian believers' baptism. Earlier in this letter, Paul reminded them that their baptism symbolized the internal change that had begun when they first put their faith in Christ. On one hand, the Colossian believers had died in the sense that Christ's death on the cross paid the debt incurred by their sins, a substitutionary death. But on the other hand, the Colossian believers had also been resurrected in the sense that the Holy Spirit had begun empowering them to live in the new way of faith, hope, and love. Paul referred to this spiritual resurrection at the beginning of last week's passage, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. It, you have been raised with Christ. Between these two reminders, you have been raised with Christ, for you have died, Paul had the Colossian believers' spiritual transformation covered. Now, of course, the Colossian believers were physically much as they were before their baptism. We made this point in passing last week, but let's spend a little more time on it now. The Colossian believers had changed on the inside, but on the outside, they were the same. Their bodies were no different, and neither was the world around them. And we know how that feels, don't we? It's not hard to imagine being one of those Colossian believers coming to faith in Christ, putting hope in the gospel, and receiving the Holy Spirit, but then waking up the next day with the same neck pain that you've had for the past six months, feeling the same tiredness that started in your 30s and just never went away. It's not hard to imagine being submerged underwater and raised up to new life and then heading back into work with the same coworkers you've had for years overhearing the same arguments and conversations about government, the, the next generation, food prices, sports teams, celebrity gossip, whatever. It's not hard to imagine how this might have created a feeling of tension in the Colossian believers' hearts, tension between the inner transformation they had experienced and the outward sameness they encountered everywhere they went. And it's really not hard to imagine, at least for me, how that tension might have intensified whenever the Colossian believers found themselves stumbling back into sins they had left behind, making mistakes they thought they had mastered, praying prayers that seemed to go nowhere, making the right choices but still getting hurt. We all know that frustration, that tension, don't we? But it's not always easy to talk about this tension I think we here at PBCC are more comfortable than most with being vulnerable about our burdens, and I love that we are. But even still, it can still be hard sometimes to express our discontent and frustration. And I think that is part of our nature. 
I think it's certainly been reinforced by the idea popular in American Christianity that to be Christian means always feeling happy and chipper and content. How dare we dishonor God with our dissatisfaction? You know, over the years, I've kind of earned for myself a reputation of being the sad pastor. (laughs) Always looking onto the darker side of life. For me, the cup is rarely half full. It's just tipped over, rolled off the table, shattered to pieces. (laughs) But I believe God can put those pieces back together again. And sometimes the glory of that is not fully seen until we see it in pieces on the ground. But it's still hard to talk about, isn't it? It's hard to enter into those spaces. Now certainly it's, it's sinful, it is sinful, to stubbornly and faithlessly complain and grumble against God. I'm not advocating for that, certainly. But Paul was not afraid to acknowledge that there is a tension that sits at the heart of genuine Christianity. A tension between what is experienced now and what will be experienced in the future. Let's look back at verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Without taking away from the reality of their internal transformation, Paul made the startling declaration that the Colossian believer's life actually had not yet been attained. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. The hiddenness of this life suggests that it is different from the newness of life the Colossian believers were already experiencing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is this other life? What is this life? What is this life that remained hidden, not yet revealed, not yet received by the Colossian believers? Well, there is only one possibility for what this hidden life could be. The glorious, transcendent, everlasting life with God in his eternal kingdom promised to all his people. This hidden life is none other than the physical resurrection that awaited the Colossian believers, the physical resurrection that would complete their spiritual resurrection. This is the only life that remained for them to receive, the only life that had not yet been revealed to them or to the rest of the world. And this life deserved to be thought of as the Colossian believers' truest, fullest life. Notice that Paul did not say another life is hidden with Christ in God or the afterlife is hidden with Christ in God. The term afterlife suggests that this life is primary and what comes after is simply after. But for Paul, what comes after is the only experience that may correctly be termed life. Why? Because it will exceed this so-called life in every conceivable way. In peace, in joy, in rest, in pleasure, in access to God, in experience of his glory, in fellowship with his family, in beauty and in strength, in health, yes, even and in wealth, in height, in width, in depth, in length. It's length alone, brothers and sisters, is enough for it to be considered their truest, fullest life. Statistically speaking, what are 70, 80, 90, or even 100 years compared to eternity? But this truest, fullest life in all its glory is hidden with Christ in God. Just as Christ is not here, but is seated at the right hand of God, so this resurrection life is not fully, truly here, but remains hidden in Christ. Why? Why has God hidden the Colossian believer's truest, fullest life? 
Well, why does anyone hide anything? We hide things for safekeeping, to guarantee their readiness. And we hide things so that only those who have been given the right may receive them. And we hide things to intensify the satisfaction felt by those recipients when it finally comes time to receive what's been hidden. I would suggest that God has hidden the Colossian believers' resurrection life with Christ for all these reasons, and it will remain hidden for them, even now, inaccessible to the, in the present, but not in the future. Verse 4, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When will the Colossian believers begin their truest, fullest life? When will their spiritual resurrection be completed by the redemption of their bodies? When Christ appears. When Christ returns. When the ruling and reigning Christ rises from his seat at the right hand of God and returns to this world in all his resurrection glory, then the Colossian believers will truly, fully begin living who they really are, their truest, fullest identities, their truest, fullest callings, their truest, fullest selves will be truly and fully revealed when Christ appears. And what will be revealed to them will be glorious. Paul declared to them, you also will appear with him in glory. Whose glory is in view here? Christ's glory or the Colossian believer's glory? Well, grammatically we don't know, but that's probably the point. It will be one glory shared between Christ and the Colossian believers and words fail to describe how incredible that will be, but we'll all be there to see it, brothers and sisters. More than that, we will be there to share in it, to shine in it too, because what is true for the Colossian believers is true for us as well. For we too have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the second of the two corner piece truths Paul shared with the Colossian believers, and now with us. Christ will return. And when he does, he will share with us his resurrection life. There will be a second advent, at the first, he came carrying a cross, but at the second, he will come wearing a crown, and he will share with his people the crown of life so that we may live our truest, fullest lives with him forever. Now, to be clear, what we're talking about here is not some ethereal, disembodied, vague existence. When Christ was raised from the dead, he did not appear as a hovering, ghostly apparition. You know, Thomas didn't put his hand forward into Jesus's and it just whoo, went right through. That's not what happened. No, he had a physical body that was capable of eating and embracing, capable of real presence. It was also capable of more than what a typical human body could do. He could appear and disappear at will. He could enter through locked doors. He could shine with blinding glory. And he could cook a mean breakfast on the beach. <laughs> Reality was Christ's plaything because the glory of his resurrection body exceeded the reality of this world. 
Now, popular culture tends to imagine heaven as floaty and weightless and all of its inhabitants as these angelic winged beings sitting on clouds, playing harps, eating cheesecake. That last part doesn't sound bad. But the, but the biblical authors were adamant, cheesecake or not, that the resurrection would be tangible, not ethereal, physical, not merely spiritual, and Christ's own resurrection body was living proof. As Paul would explain to the Corinthian believers, his resurrection body was the first fruits, the preview of what would eventually happen, not only to God's people, but also to all creation itself. Everything will be remade, restored, raised to new glorious life, resurrected to what it was always, always, always meant to be. Brothers and sisters, this is a hope worth anticipating. This is a promise worth holding on to. This is a corner piece truth, one of the biggest and most fundamental in all the word of God. This was certainly a corner piece truth in Paul's teachings, both in this letter to the Colossians as well as in his other letters. When the Thessalonian believers became discouraged by the physical deaths taking place among them, Paul reminded them that no believer, however presently dead, would be excluded from Christ's resurrection life. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And when the Corinthian believers, who are tempted to deny the possibility of being raised from the dead, Paul reminded them of the truth of Christ's very real resurrection and what it previewed for them. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, he wrote, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And when the Philippian believers faced poverty and persecution for their faith in Christ, Paul reminded them of the hope of Christ's return and their resurrection to truest, fullest life. He said to them, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Each of these passages deserves its own sermon. I share them only briefly for us to see that the truth of Christ's return was no small thing for Paul. He returned to this truth again and again and again, and not only his repetition of this truth, but his clarity of insight into how Christ's return will unfold proves that for Paul, the return of Christ was a promise to be taken literally. And so was the promise of our resurrection. Dying and being raised from the dead was no mere metaphor for Paul. He wasn't merely being figurative in his language. Paul wholeheartedly expected every believer's internal and spiritual resurrection to be completed externally and physically. And so we must ask ourselves, as Bay Area believers, do we also believe that Christ will return, and that when he does, our truest, fullest lives will 
finally begin. A part of me winces a bit whenever I think about that question. Do I, Eugene Kwan, believe that Christ will return and that my life will not truly, fully begin until he does? I wince at that question, not because I don't believe it up here in my head, but because I know that to truly believe it down here in my heart means that I have to change more and more the way I live. I must admit that this truth and all its beauty and wonder and potential, it's, it's frightening. It's frightening in some ways because it forces me to confront the truth that I do not belong here, that this really is not my home, that the kingdoms I've built here, that the wealth that I've stored here, the goals and ambitions I've set for myself here, that they just don't mean what I thought they did. And there's a pain associated with that realization that makes me want to look away from this truth, if I'm being fully honest. Growing up as a Korean American in Indianapolis, I felt the foreignness of my identity every day I went to school. I was one of the only Asians in my middle school, um, as well as my high school. Uh, the only times I saw Asians was when I went to church on Sunday. Um, that was a safe place, not just because I had met God there, but because everywhere I looked, people looked like me, and I felt like I belonged somewhere. As I grow up, I find that that longing to belong, that longing to be here, that longing to be settled, it sticks with me. It sticks with me, it's stuck with me, even as I come out here where I'm encountering more diversity than I ever did in Indiana. And yet God is calling me to more more of that sense of dislocation. He's calling all of us to this, and there is a pain associated with it. But the courageous part of me wants to embrace that pain. The courageous part of me wants to embrace this tension, to embrace this sense of unbelonging, to embrace this dislocation. Why? Because that courageous part of me knows that the life to come will be better than this one. That whatever we have now here in this world is rubbish, is lost compared to what's in store for us. The courageous part of me longs for that life to come. It aches for Christ to return. It's desperate for Christ to share his resurrection glory with me, even if for now it fills me with the tension of dislocation. And perhaps you find yourself feeling the same division in your hearts. Perhaps you also find in yourself a part of you that wants to settle for this world, to settle into this world, and to stay settled in this world. Perhaps you also find in yourself a courageous longing, a holy discontent, a hunger and a desperation for Christ to return and to set all things right and to reunite us with himself, not only in spirit, but in bodily reality as well. Brothers and sisters, that tension of dislocation is honoring to Christ. That sense of not being where we belong, that is the heart cry of those whose citizenship is in heaven. In fact, for Paul, living into that longing was evidence of genuine maturity. Philippians 3, 12 to 15. Not that I have already obtained this, Paul said, of his own salvation, of his own eternal life in Christ. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Brothers and sisters, let us think this way. Let us embrace this tension of dislocation, this life of longing. Let us embrace this, not for its own sake, as if feeling more pain makes us more spiritual. No. Let us embrace this simply because it is the authentic response to the truth that the one we love and the life we want are coming soon but are not yet here. Like a child waiting for their birthday and all the gifts and privileges they'll begin to enjoy, let us embrace this tension and longing. Like a couple waiting for their wedding day and the new life they will begin together, let us embrace this tension and longing like friends scattered across time zones, like family members divided by distance, like a community separated by illness and complication and only able to be together virtually. Let us embrace this tension and longing for reunion, holding tightly to the corner piece truth that will all be resolved when Christ returns. Throughout the pandemic, the cry of many people was, I wish things could go back to the way they were. I wish things could go back to normal. But normal never was, brothers and sisters. God has given us this opportunity to nurture in us a longing for something beyond this world by exposing the fragility of this one. By exposing the brokenness and the weakness and the futility of this one, he's calling us to awaken to the reality that there is a greater reality coming. So let us lean into the courageous parts of our hearts. Let us nourish it with reminders of this corner piece truth so that we may grow in anticipation and in expectation and even, even in peace and in joy because ultimately that is what grows in our hearts as we hold on to this corner piece truth, an unshakable peace and a resilient joy that can look through our tears to the truest, fullest life hidden with Christ and God. If we set this corner piece truth in its rightful place on the table of our hearts, it will teach us how to live with longing, with a holy discontent that rises to God like in us as worship. And it is this worshipful longing that I invite you to bring with you to the Lord's table as we share in communion. After Paul shared words of institution with the Corinthian believers, he commanded them, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think we're pretty good at proclaiming the Lord's death. We reflect on the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood as a sacrifice on the cross that pays the debt of our sin. We confess our sin to him and we release our guilt and our shame to the Lord. But I wonder if sometimes we overlook the anticipation in that phrase. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion anticipates Christ's return. It points us forward to the wedding feast of Christ and his bride, the church. And we know that at that feast, a thimble of grape juice and a quarter-inch cracker will not be on the menu. <laughs> 
what we have here in our hands will be so far exceeded by the feast prepared for us. But this is what we have for now. And its meagerness leaves something to be desired. But that's the point. That's the point. It's supposed to stir in us a longing for more, for the truest, fullest feast and the truest, fullest life to come. So I invite you to take a moment to set your hearts on what is to come. And after we've reflected and remembered, we will take these elements together in anticipation of the glory that Christ will bring with him when he returns. Lucinda, would you provide us with some music? Let's pray. As you leave this place, may God fill your hearts with the Holy Spirit. And may the Spirit of God remind you day by day and moment by moment that you do have a place you belong. And there is a reunion coming soon because Christ will return. And when he does, he will share with us his eternal life. May we all step into that with grace and hope and courage as we go from here. Be well and be blessed. Mm.